you have sweaty balls or volleyball netty balls, it's time to make them ready balls. The Manscaped.com Lawnmower 3.0 will do the job and clean your knob with its patented no-nick head so your head will function as desired. Enter promo code WRESTLINGFUTURE for a generous 20% discount. That's enter WRESTLINGFUTURE for a 20% discount. Manscaped.com and wrestling with the future, going balls to the walls with Manscaped.com and the Lawnmower 3.0, your balls will thank you. And so will we. Part two episode of Married to the Mob. We're joined once again by George Anastasia. He is a, a Pulitzer Prize nominated author, a writer, expert. Uh, you call it expert, George, or uh, or historian? What do you prefer, expert? I think expert's a bit of a stretch. Yeah, probably historian's better. Historian. He is a mafia historian. Uh, he's also a really Cool cat to have in your corner if you're looking for a good cup of French coffee. Uh, <laughs> I think we've established that with Dan last time. But George Anastasia is back to talk life in and out of the mob. We're going to talk about his uh, past and present works. And joining me in this conversation is himself, the happy haberdasher, the smartest guy in the room. I have to say that I'm contractually obligated. Dan, the man, Sebastiano. Welcome, and how you doing, Danny? Oh, looking forward to this conversation. We Good. Had so George, much. how are you, brother? I'm doing well, thank you. Doing very well. Good. Well, I'll tell you what. I uh, I told you off the air, I'll, I'll say it to our friends. George Anastasia's episode, the last episode we did, in fact, the first episode we did with George, garnered on Spotify alone more than 27,000 listens. That's That's verified. That's just on Spotify. I don't know what iTunes and iHeart did or uh, Google Play or any of those others, but whew, holy crap, that was a super episode. It's going to be right up there with the episode that Dan and I just did with the legendary Dominic Danucci, another well-known Italian. <laughs> How about that one, Dan? We're everywhere. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Guys, I tell you what, man, you guys like you, you, you reproduce like bunny rabbits. I was saying you guys like I'm not a, a gabon myself. Of course I am. Look at me with this face. Come on. So, George, when last we left off, we had a bit of fun talking about some of the nicknames and some of the uh, film influence from uh, our, our, <laughs> our friends and the our friends and the family. <laughs> But I actually got an email from someone who wanted to know if you knew uh, whether Anthony Fat Tony Salerno was involved in the Kennedy assassination and what happened to Nicholas, uh, Nikki the Crow Caramande. Uh, uh, last question first. Nick Caramande is still living somewhere in middle America. He, he went into the witness security program. Uh, and he's, he, he, I, I talk to him occasionally. He's, if he could come back to South Philly and undo everything he did, he would do it in a minute. Uh, what I know is he's living in a trailer park somewhere out there. And is, uh, you know, uh, when he was a wise guy, I think it was the high point of his life. And yeah. he misses that. 
But yeah, I'm sure. I mean, he's Nick must be in his 80s now. He's in really good health. Um, so yeah, I talk to him once in a while, but he's out there. In terms of there's an interesting connection between that world, George, and the world that Dan and I come from uh, in professional wrestling and MMA, in that a lot of times these guys don't know how to retire. They don't know what to do with themselves when they can't do what they used to do. Is that a problem? Not just for Nick Caramonde or the crow, as they call him, but is that a problem widespread amongst the wise guys? I think it is for a lot of guys from Caramonde's generation. Now he's in his eighties now. Uh, that was that was their life, and they've lost that, and they can never go back to that. I think some of his younger guys that have cooperated and disappeared. Uh, they know how to make the change. Like Phil Leonetti, for example, uh, is living a really good life. He's changed. He's changed his whole approach. He's a businessman. Mm-hmm. He's doing very well. So some guys can't, and some guys, you know, I think it's a psychological thing. George, is there a stigma with these guys? Uh, those that still use their legal name rather than you know Americanizing it. Uh, you know, Phil Leonetti, I'm assuming, is still Philip Leonetti. Well, I don't know. I think he went into Woodsack. He's probably got a different name. I mean, okay. that's the only, way, the only way they can disappear. They get they get a whole new identity. So yeah. it, it may still be an Italian name, but it's not going to be Phil Leonetti. Yeah, yeah well, that that's what I was getting at. Is uh, are, are there are there guys, old school guys that are, I don't know what the word is, Dan. I'm looking for a hesitant maybe or resistant to changing their their heritage. Well, you know where I'm going, Dan? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're, you're saying, I mean, obviously someone like Philly and Eddie, he's going to keep an Italian name, might be, you know, Carboni or something like that, whereas, you know, he's not going to go into witness protection and become an O'Connor or, you know, a, a Muhammad or something like that. Oh, yeah. No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, they try to stay as close as they can to who they were. For example, I would imagine, I don't know what his, his new name is, but I'll bet you his first name is still Phil. You know, I mean, that's what they're used to, and that's what you respond to. So it's difficult yeah. to change that kind of stuff around and, and not get tripped up. So, uh, Yeah. Dan, go ahead I, and hand that if, if I can chime in, would it be not uncommon to maybe take a middle name, like Philip as a middle name? Because I know, I know a lot of people that go by their middle name. You know, that way yeah. he can... His name can be harder to look up, but he can still be called Phil. Yeah, and the other and the other reason that, that you might want to do that is if you're in a restaurant, for example, and somebody sees you who doesn't doesn't know you're in hiding, they go, "Hey, Phil, how you doing?" And if you were somebody else, to say, "What do you mean, Phil? Your name is Joe." That kind of thing. So it's all about security. That's part of well, it. That's a good point. And part of it is about being comfortable. And well, then, then let me ask you to expand on that. Then um, one of the things we, we talked about the Hollywood portrayal of organized crime. There must have been a hundred different action movies in the last couple, you know, couple decades, where the premise is somebody's in witness protection and the mob finds him, and then he's got to fight his way. Is that? I understand that's obviously not as action filled, but is it as common, or should I say, relatively common for for people in Witsec to be discovered because of how deep? The pockets go with some of these families. Uh, that's a good question. Then, I, I, guys in Witsec who have left and come back, there's been examples. They've been killed. If there's a guy in Witsec who gets killed, we're not going to hear about it because the feds don't want people to know that. Right. You know, Witsec has this reputation that it's an umbrella. You're covered. Don't worry about it. 
So somebody's got a new new identity and he gets whacked somewhere. The the police report from wherever he is is going to be under his new identity. We're not going to know about it. And the feds are not going to make a point of saying, oh, we just lost the guy. So I think it probably yeah. happens. I don't think it happens often. But I think even when it when it does happen, we're not going to hear about it. George, can you Philly? Phil- there was a guy in Philly named Mike Palmer who was living out in the mid- Midwest somewhere and uh, mysteriously got run over by a train. The, 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 it sounded like a hit. And yeah. I, I learned about it only because his family who remained in the area was upset about it. That's wow. the only quasi-example I know of a guy in the program who was killed. Well, let, let me ask you then, George, a guy like Sammy Gravano, yeah. who initially refused protection uh, and then accepted it and then ended up getting busted. Yeah. A guy like that, you know, who's who, who's clearly, you know, you, you, you can't really hide that face. I mean, you can you can d- distort it to some degree. But I mean, he is who he is. He's a, a very distinctive character. Yeah. Uh, Sammy the Bull. He and I mean that, and literally and figuratively, he's a character. This guy. Um, another guy that you don't know whether what's coming out of his mouth is uh, accurate, genuine uh, bullshit, or, <laughs> or or what it is. Let's talk about let's talk about a guy like that. Well, I mean, Sammy Gravano is a good example of what you were talking about. There's a guy who went into the program but couldn't stop being Sammy the Bull. I mean, he just that's who he was. And so when they relocated him to Phoenix, he and his son got involved in an ecstasy operation. He gets indicted and he gets sent back to jail. I mean, he's out again now, but this yeah. was a guy who, that's who he was and he couldn't stop being Sammy the Bull. Other guys- Is there, the, 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 is there a concern about that, Jordan? You mentioned the Crow uh, a little earlier being of a certain age bracket and guys of of this, you know, the what they would call the wise guy generation- you know, guys in their late seventies, early eighties—that that's their whole life. It's all they have ever known. Uh, you know, a guy like Sammy, what what does he do? I mean, he can try to go legit, but at some point, I mean, we all know it. I mean, I hate to be prejudge, you know, judgmental, but a guy like Sammy the Bull, he only really has one choice in life. You know. Well, I mean, yeah. What do you, what's your skill set? What are you good at? It, that's that's, that's what I'm getting at. <laughs> So what yeah. are you, where are you going to go if, if your skill is to be an extortionist and a thug and a murderer and you're, you're let out of jail? What are, you, what are you supposed to do with any of that? Exactly. See, some guys, some guys can rechannel. Some guys can rechannel the energy and take it in a different direction. Some guys can't. Yeah. Go ahead, Dan. Well, you know, it was funny. We were talking about you, you mentioned the crow and the bull. Some of the feedback we got from the show was the discussion we had on nicknames and something I was hoping we could touch oh on boy. last week that we didn't <laughs> oh really get much time to touch on. Um, obviously, there's a lot of high profile nicknames and we talked about the origin. I mean, I, I mentioned I'm Italian. If I go to a family reunion and there's 20 people there, 18 of them have nicknames. You know, you you I understand the point, but the question that, that got brought up a lot is. Can you think of any examples of people who had nicknames that absolutely hated them and the other side being people who loved them for one reason or another? I mean, you know, to the point of where, in, you know, you, sometimes you see in the mob movies, if you call me pretty boy to my yeah. face, I'll kill you. Like, was are there? Well, there I were, wish the hell I'd have asked that damn question. <laughs> one of the guys we were earlier mentioned is Phil Leonetti. His nickname was Crazy Phil. He hated that nickname. And but. 
his uncle, Mickey Scarpo, said, "Why, you're crazy. That's a great nickname for what you're about. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's there, there are guys who are, you know, they, they don't. Little Mickey. Nobody ever called him Little Mickey to his face. Yeah, not to his face. No. You know, short and stacked, <laughs> but that's what he was known as. So, yeah, some of the guys, I think, like it gives them status, gives them a little bit of audacity. Other guys, no. The other thing about nicknames, I think we talked about this last week or two weeks ago. You grew up in South Philadelphia. Everybody's got a nickname. I had an uncle. I had an uncle Tony. Now there are eight million Anthony's in South Philly. Yeah. When he was growing up, he was a short order cook at a at a restaurant called Tartax. Around the neighborhood, it was called Tony Tartac. I mean, because there were so many other Tonys. Has nothing to do with being a gangster. Has to do with another interesting. Exactly. Was there was a, a an FBI report in New York when the different families in New York were proposing guys to get made. They would have to pass the names around to the other families. Do you know anything bad about this guy? Do you have you heard anything negative about him? Should we make him a part of our family? Okay. And some of the comments that came back from the other families was. Joe Bada Bing, who the, who the hell put the nicknames in? We don't know these guys by their real names. What's what's his what's his nickname? That's the only way we're gonna know who he is. So yeah, funny. it plays a role a lot of different ways. Well then, well, then yeah. Me, okay, continuing with the nickname. Game. Continuing with the nickname question, I'm curious. Um, obviously, you know, uh, Fat Tony or Scarface, just there, there's nicknames that have popped up more than once through the history of organized yeah. crime. Is there a is there some kind of unwritten rule on res, like how long somebody has to be gone or what kind of or distance you have to have in order to have two people with the same nickname? No, I don't think so. I mean, especially if you start to look at nicknames with guys named Tony, I would bet you there are four, <laughs> five, six, seven, eight Fat Tonys throughout the, the underworld. You know, that's just, it's just what it is. Well, we actually had a question about a Tony at the beginning of the show. Uh, someone wants to know, and they actually, we had a couple of emails regarding your first appearance, and uh, one of them regarded, of course, Nikki the Crow and the gentleman uh, named Anthony Fat Tony Salerno. Uh, his involvement or lack thereof in uh, either the Kennedy assassination or his involvement, I guess, with the Sam Giancana and that, that crew? Well, I mean, I know a little bit about the Kennedy assassination because I teach a course on organized crime, and it's one of the things we get involved in. I've never heard Salerno's name linked to that. I've heard Sam Giancana from Chicago, Johnny Roselli, handsome Johnny from L.A., Santo Traficante from Tampa, Sam Giancana from Chicago, and Carlos Marcello from New Orleans. If you right. if, Historically, if you look into it, most people point the fingers at those guys. They were part of, and at one point, apparently, they were working hand in hand with the CIA. This is when Castro had driven the mob out of Cuba, shut down all their casinos. And then we had Kennedy was the president and he, the Bay of Pigs were going to invade Cuba. And the, the mob was behind the CIA with that because they're going to get the casinos back. The Bay of Pigs was a fiasco. And after that, they started pointing fingers at one another. And a lot of people think one of the reasons Kennedy was killed was over that whole situation. Well, yeah. <laughs> Let, let me ask, out of curiosity, a Angela will tell you, um, we've had discussions on the show before. I usually get to play the straight man to the to the conspiracy. Um, in this case, I, I see why a lot of people raise an eyebrow. Just on a scale of, say, zero to 100, what's the percentage chance that the official narrative that Oswald worked alone is true? 30, 25, 30%. I mean, look at the That's actually higher than I thought you would say. How does that single bullet thing work? One bullet, yeah. you know damage i mean it's ridiculous you know there's always an outside chance that 
But I, everything that I've read and, and trying to study it, I, there were a lot more people and a lot more parts in play when it all went down. We so should maybe- also point out that the uh, brainchild behind that that gem was a Philadelphia center in Arlen Specter. Exactly. That's the single bullet guy. Right <laughs> we also had a couple of emails, George. Yeah. One of them was a very interesting email. They wanted to know how much involvement do mob lawyers, and they threw a bunch of names out. Some of them I, I already knew and some I had to be refreshed. Right. How much involvement do mob lawyers have before or after the fact in the representing their clients, quote unquote clients, people like Bruce Cutler, Robert Simone, um, Salvatore Avina. Uh, what was the other name they gave me? Um, uh, Anthony Peruto. I think uh, Anthony, I believe that was Anthony Peruto. Okay. Yes. Yes, sir. Uh, so uh, let's talk about there's always been this kind of sordid uh, history slash association between mobsters and their attorneys. Yeah, and, and, and I think there have been instances where attorneys have crossed the line and become part of the organization rather than being the attorney. They're, they're, and I think that's what the uh, what the questioner is going for. And I think Bobby Simone was an example of that. And Bobby Simone ended up getting going to jail because of that. You know, he got involved in the middle of the the uh, Penn's Landing extortion. And uh, yeah. he got convicted. And Bobby was an excellent lawyer, but Bobby also would. <laughs> there was a great line about Bobby Simone when he died. He said, he, he, he supposedly once said, uh, uh, 90% of my money I spent on gambling and women, and the other 10% I wasted. So, you know, Bobby, Bobby liked to live large. <laughs> Bobby liked to live large, and, and he was an excellent lawyer, but he also got, he got jammed up in a lot of things because he, he liked to gamble and because he ended up being more than just. Nicky Scarfo's lawyer, uh, and unfortunately, it, it, it worked. And again. I want to pursue that line of questioning because there are, uh, uh, he's not certainly not the first uh, attorney to do time uh, after representing a client. Uh, my um, my recollection of the Gotti trial was that shortly thereafter, perhaps a couple of years after, Bruce Cutler ended up being uh, convicted of. Um, Jury tampering or attempted jury tampering. Uh, uh, John Gotti's attorney, Bruce Cutler, went to jail. I don't know if Cutler was ever convicted of that. I know Cutler, Cutler was another guy who became the champion for his client. But I don't know that Bruce ever crossed that line. Bruce was a very dramatic attorney, and, and he, he represented a gangster here in Philadelphia in a racketeering yeah. trial and uh, didn't come off quite as strongly as he had in New York. I don't know that Cutler ever crossed that line and got jammed up in terms of uh, crime. Salavino, on the other hand, ended up. Salavino was indicted in a big racketeering case uh, against John Stamper, but he went to trial and he beat the case. He was acquitted. Uh, now, John uh, uh, John Stamper was the, uh, uh, as we mentioned on the last show, was the interim boss in Philadelphia. He was represented by an attorney named Salvatore Vina uh, from, I believe, Camden, New Jersey. Correct. Yeah, right down on Market Street. On yeah. The- and um, Avina's law office was bugged by the FBI. For well, I was, that's just what I was, I was just going to go there. So let's talk about that. Um, you know, the FBI uh, is a government organization, but they don't necessarily play by the same rules that a lot of people do. Um, and we know, <laughs> we know that they don't. So let's just call the spade a spade. You know, sometimes you got to break the law to make the law. 
So, and they did, as far as I'm concerned, they did uh, the right thing. They got the information they needed to convict the bad guy. So is that a bad thing for the FBI to break into a guy's office and bug his uh, his everyday <laughs> daily life? Well, you know, I think it I think it depends on how you go about doing that. And and the in fact, I wrote a book about this called The Goodfellow Tapes. The the FBI had to go in front of a judge and say, "We believe that John Stanford, the mob boss, is holding mob meetings in his lawyer's office and he's hiding behind." lawyer-client privilege, and we want to bug the office so we can hear what's going on. And the way the system works is it's not like, oh, okay, go do it. First, got to present, here's why we believe, and you get an approval to do it for 30 days. And then in 30 days, you have to go back in front of the judge and say, here's what we're finding. We want to do another 30 days. Now, that went on for more than two years. Yeah. So and they constantly went in front of the judge and said, here's what we picked up on tape. Here's what's being said. And that's one of the reasons that whole John Stanford, Joey Merlino war is so well documented because every time something happened, these guys are back in arena's office talking about it. The other fascinating yeah. thing in that, in that tape is it, it, I mean, some of the stuff you can't make up any better than it is as a writer. Sometimes I look to heaven and say, thank you, Jesus. The Avina's in his office one day having a meeting with Tony Buck Piccolo, who was the yes. council of the family right there. And they're talking about, FBI surveillance, FBI bugs, cooperating witnesses. You got to be careful who you talk to. You never know. Be careful when you're on the phone. You never know who's listening. And Avina says, you know what, Tony, you're absolutely right. I had an electronic expert come in over the weekend and he swept this entire suite of offices. Cost me 500 bucks. Piccolo said, Sal, that's money well spent. Meanwhile, the tapes are just rolling and picking up. <laughs> it's, you know, it's one of them moments where you say, there it is. And, and the thing about that's tapes, crazy tapes are such great pieces of evidence because you can't cross examine a tape. If you got yeah. on tape talking about how we're going to get this guy here and give him one in the back of the head, how do you cross examine that tape? Well, along you know, those I... lines, um, let's take another guy, uh, John Gotti, the uh, Ravenite Social Club. Right, there's another example. Uh, now, yeah. there was a, an elderly woman that lived, her apartment, I believe, was just above the social club. Now, how did they gain access to this elderly woman's apartment to be able to bug Gotti's uh, social club, George? Well, Gotti was constantly under surveillance, and the Ravenite was constantly being watched. And I think the FBI, over the course of time, saw that periodically Gotti would disappear upstairs with some other people. And this would be when the elderly woman was out, so they had use of her apartment. Again, the FBI went in front of a judge, said, here's what we believe got authorization, and they bugged that apartment. And and again, it's the same thing. Gotti's own words buried him in that trial. It was oh, my own. God, did they, yeah. Well, so if, electronic surveillance is a very, very big tool in, in the war on organized crime. Oh, well, huge. Yeah. Good, Dan. You know, with uh, the Gotti case was pretty high profile at the time for some of it, it, and it's been popped up before with the FBI surveillance, especially going back to, like, the 70s, where the, the, the public – and juries and all had to be educated on mob slang. You know, I remember where they talked about, like, we're going to play this tape for you. Here's what the word whack means. Here's what this means. Here's what that means. I'm curious, did uh, one, if you could maybe expand on that, and two, did language evolve because they knew they needed new code words? Like you mentioned before, the the, the chin comment, right. you know, on the last episode we did. Did, yeah. did, if you could expand on on learning the language, how law enforcement had to do that, and then if if the language evolved because of 
the fact that people knew what you were saying now. I, I mean, taught you well, young squire. The, the more law enforcement listened, the better they were in interpreting what these guys were talking about. And so any slang phrases or language, they would pick that up. What, what Gotti and others in New York started to do was what they called walk talks. They weren't going to meet in a room. They were going to take a walk around the block because they figured they're less likely to be picked up electronically if you're out in the open air walking around the block, that kind of stuff. And as we mentioned before, the, you know, the, the, with Gigante, you could never mention his name. He just said that you rub your chin and say, this yeah. guy wants that. And that, he, was, he was very paranoid about, about tapes because tapes are so devastating. In terms of how the language evolved, I mean, uh, uh, the, the, the wise guys are always talking about the feds. You got to be careful about the FBI, but they won't say the FBI. They'll say the eyeballs. These guys, or you know, you know those guys. That kind of thing. It's yeah. it's it's kind of common knowledge in the underworld what they're talking about. They don't want to say it outright because they don't they don't want to in any way indicate that they're guilty of anything. I mean, why would no, you work with the FBI if you're not doing sure. anything? That kind of thing. Absolutely. Go ahead, Dan. Follow up. It, well, then, um, one of the things, if, if I can have you expand on that a bit, is tradition, too. Like um, you mentioned where they didn't want to mention the FBI. There's a, a the old tradition in, in theater, like stage production, where you never say the word Hamlet during the, during the, the play um, or during the production. Was there words like FBI or cop or something that were just considered bad luck, regardless of what you were talking about? No, I think, I think most guys were, were smart enough to realize you just don't even make those kind of discussions because... You're yeah. going to pull attention to yourself if there's a tape. But no, there was no edict. And, and quite frankly, then some of these guys weren't smart enough to realize any of that anyway. Some of them just didn't care, and some of them weren't sophisticated enough to, to be cognizant of any of that. So, you know, it's it, it runs the gamut. Well, if I can, uh, one final follow-up with that. Um, Take time, Dan. Was, was, there, was there ever the idea, you just mentioned how a lot of them didn't understand, was there ever the idea of counter-surveillance? Like with um, people like, say, Pablo Escobar was famous for having fake conversations to mislead law enforcement. Was there was there incidents where they, like, we suspect we're being bugged, so let's basically discuss something that's not real to throw law enforcement off what we're actually doing? You know, I, I suspect there were. I can't think of any specific example, but I think if somebody thinks a phone is bugged, they're going to get on that phone and say something contrary to what the reality is. And that is in part to exonerate themselves, in part to throw the FBI off course so they go in another direction. You know, that's okay. it's it's a question of knowing if you know that a, that a phone is bugged, then you can play the reverse game on these guys. Uh, and if you know a room is bugged, or sometimes they'll bug a car, you know, and if you yeah. get word of that, you know. Interesting but, stuff. Interesting. Talking about language, you know, just like in, in pro wrestling, you know, we have our own language. It's called carny. Um, I'm assuming, based on the, the history and based on the conversations we've had, that the mob has their own language as well. They've got the. Uh, some words, and I wrote a couple of these words. Imagine that me writing some shit down. Um, <laughs> let's talk about what is a vig or vigorish. Tell people what a vig or vigorish is. That's the interest on a loan shark loan. I mean, it, and that's and that's another thing people don't realize. How Nicky Crow told me that when I first met him. There's nothing better than shark money. And I and I said, what do you mean, Nicky? He said, well, you know, a guy owes me ten grand and he can't pay, and I'm a bookmaker. I'll send him to a loan shark who borrowed the money, and he borrows the ten grand at three points for ten weeks, and the vig is yeah. the three points. It's three hundred a week, 
and after 10 weeks, he's paid 3,000 in interest and still owes the 10. And you, and you extend it to another 10 weeks and another 10 weeks. And at the end of a year, the guy's paid 15.6 in interest and still owes you the 10. And you've taken the 15.6 and put it on a street of three points. The big is the three points. It's the interest you charge on a loan. It's interesting stuff. Unless you live on the East Coast, if you live in middle America, you probably don't know what any of this stuff means. George, tell everybody what a street number is. The street number, you know, it's it's the lottery, but it's the street number, you know, and and, and that it pays off a little bit better than the state lottery. And it's usually based on the, the paramutual payoff at, a, at a, a given racetrack on any given day. And the exactly. Last, so that way nobody can control what the number is going to be. You know, one of the things people don't realize is just the of gangsters, these are crooks. When they're running a gambling operation, they want it to be legit. They don't want anybody playing with anything because it's their business and, and the yeah. credibility of their business. A better's got to know he's going to get an honest shot. So nobody wants to fix anything. Now, my favorite word, George, fugazi. What's a fugazi? <laughs> fugazi. That was Donnie Brasco. They had that. In, that was great. Yes, sir. <laughs> A fugazi is something that's fake. Remember when Costco was a piece of jewelry? Yeah, that's a fugazi. Anything that's fake is a fugazi. Exactly. Yeah. I love that. I love that. So uh, one of the things, uh, one of the hot buttons that we had on the last, uh, the last episode were when you and I were speaking about some of the photos that were behind me on that ep- episode. Um, there was a lot of interest from people in how certain mobsters met their final demise um we know that paul castellano of course was assassinated angelo bruno um but a lot of uh a lot of the older school guys lived to be you know into their 80s and 90s you know talking about people like uh oh uh god what was it meyer lansky uh uh dutch schultz uh um you know, Benny Bugsy Siegel wasn't so lucky, but uh, there's certainly guys like uh, uh, Lucky Luciano who lived uh, uh, very uh, into the, his late seventies, early eighties. For, for as far as I know, at least into yeah, he, his eighties. He, he was deported to Italy, but yeah, he lived. He didn't. He died in natural yeah. causes. So did Carlo yeah. Gambino. More recently, Carlo Gambino. And, and and we had a we had questions along those lines of what happened to these. You know, the difference between. The old school guys and and the guys of say the the sixties and seventies, all of whom seem to meet really gruesome deaths. Well, if you look at look at Philadelphia from Bruno going forward, Bruno oh, was bloodbath. Bruno was killed. Tester was uh, Phil Tester was killed. Scarfo died in prison doing life. Uh, John Staff is serving life. So I mean, why would why would you want to be the boss? I mean, what, yeah, you want to end up dead or in jail. Well, yeah, you mentioned on the last show, you know, Angelo Bruno was boss for uh, 20-something years, and John Gotti was boss for five. Yeah, yeah, that's the that's difference. That's the difference. It's, it's, it's your management style. Uh, yeah, it, it was really profound, you know, something like that kind of like you, makes, it's a head-scratcher for sure, but it makes you think, you know, what were they doing right back then? Well, you and know. I think what they did right was they just, they kept to what they knew. You know, and uh, and largely what they knew was, you know, loan sharking, uh, gambling, women. They stayed away from, you know, largely for the most part, stayed away from, you know, narcotics. Uh, 
you know, like the, I love that line uh, in Godfather, you know, uh, blood is a big expense, you know, and so there was there wasn't a lot of that. Not until Nicky Scarfo came and you and I talked about it, George being the bloodiest three years in Philly mob history with some 22, 23 people, you know, meeting really, you know, <laughs> gruesome deaths. It was carnage. Yeah. Yeah. There was a, it was a, a blood bit. There was a lot of expense back in the day. Yeah. And, and the other thing that did was it brought law enforcement down on these guys. I mean, one of the reasons Angelo Bruno was able to operate for 21 years is violence was at a minimum. And so if he's if he's taking bets or he's loaning money, by and large, nobody cares. When, when bodies started dropping in the Scarfo era, people were upset and, and law enforcement had to react. So you had to, you know, the cops. Well, the George, state- how much of that was the fact that Angelo Bruno, for all intents and purposes, is described as a really nice guy? How much does... The you know the nice guy factor. I mean, as much as a nice guy can be the mafia boss, but you know. well, uh, Angelo, you're right about that. It's some of it is a reflection of the personality. Angelo Bruno was a very avuncular. People in the neighborhood loved him, and he understood who he was, and he understood where he fit in the scheme of things. And the idea was make money, not headlines. Don't call attention to yourself. Scarfo, you know, Scarfo had a, a his history was he was banished to Atlantic City. When there was nothing to take care of down there, he was the mob caretaker in Atlantic City, nothing yeah. to take care of. And then casino gambling comes along. He's aligned with Phil Testa. Phil Testa gets killed, and all of a sudden, Scarf was the boss. Now he's grabbing with both fists. He's never had money. Now he's on top, and he's just it turned the whole organization upside down. Absolutely. Well, his uh, involvement in Atlantic City was a uh, critical turning point for uh, mob life in Philadelphia, for sure. Um, Atlantic City was never the same. It still isn't the same today as a result of it. Uh, the unions um, are all but, they're largely mob-free. I'll say that. I'm not going to say they're mob-free, but they're largely mob-free. Um, but what he did in Atlantic City was really paint uh, um, with a broad brush, you know, uh, and unfortunately, guys like me who worked there at the time, you know, we had to pay our tribute to the boss by way of our paycheck because we paid some hefty dues, brother. I got news for you. You know, yeah. I was a member of Local 54. Well, he got his hooks to Local 54. He was very close with Frank Durace, who headed that union. Uh, and in the early days of casino gambling, only Scarfo was getting a big cut. From everything that, that was happening there, and yeah. you know what else it did? It it gave him eyes and ears on the floor of each casino. If you remember back then, you would know poker was illegal, but there could oh, be yeah. there'd be a poker game up on the seventh floor in a room. You want to get a high roller up there, you get him up there. If he wants oh, to play, oh my god, poker, yeah, we got a game for you. And then another thing I was always fascinated with the uh, this is kind of the hypocrisy of all of this. Sports betting was illegal for a long time down there, right? It's only recently. Yeah. So the casinos would have a heavyweight boxing match or a Super Bowl Sunday. They would bring in all the high rollers, comp them because they wanted them to play in the casino. But yeah. these guys are serious gamblers. Are they? They don't. They don't have a bet on the boxing match. They don't have a bet on the Super Bowl. Well, of course they do. Okay. But who are they going to place the bet with? Not with the casino because it's illegal. So yeah. that was kind of the hypocrisy of all of this. You're bringing all of these guys in. It was like a ready market for the mob. 
We're sure. something. We're big screen TVs in the casino, blah, blah, blah. You want to bet? Here, I'll go see this guy. That's And they had been doing in, in Las Vegas, George, they've been doing sports books for decades sure. in Las Vegas. Finally, New Jersey has a sports book. But now let's talk about in that line, George. Let's talk about the mob influence at Philadelphia and New Jersey area racetracks. There was something that was uh, instituted many, many years ago called OTB. Tell everyone what OTB is. It's an off-track betting. Yes, sir. You have those different little stores, for want of a better word. You go go there and place bets on them. And and the, the races are... You know the, the videotapes of the races are there, and the, the the thing is, the timing of all of that. You can't fool around with the timing of all. Of that. That's how you can rig things. Yeah. In terms of, I'm watching a race, but it really happened two minutes ago. Yeah, exactly. I already, know, I already know who won that race. I'm going to put my bet down. That's where you can play with it. Uh, sure, race, absolutely. Right? The guy I wrote about in the Last Gangster, for a while worked at the Atlantic City racetrack, and he was yep. involved in the whole ring that was doping the horses. And so, yes. they, you know, they would dope oh, up yeah. their horses. So you, then there's only two or three left. You know who to put your trifecta, who to bet exactly. with. Exactly. And that's why I, I mentioned off-track betting. It was uh, highly scrutinized at the time. Um, it was uh, it was let to flourish and operate. But the mob had their hand all over that stuff. Big time. Big time. There are two books behind me, George. Uh, Gotti's Rules and The Last Gangster. Let's talk about the inspiration for The Last Gangster. That, that was Ronnie Previty. Ronnie Previty, one of the more fascinating wise guys I ever met in my life. Former Philadelphia cop. Uh, ended up in Hamilton, New Jersey, which is where he grew up, there in southwest Philly. Got involved first as a, a freelance gangster and eventually became part of John Stanford's crime family. Major, major player. One of the more erudite guys I've ever talked to in terms of the mob. And well-read. And he, he was a... Ronnie used to say, you know, some guys are specialists. I'm a general practitioner. I do exactly. it all. And, and he had his hand and everything. Only thing he said he had never done, and I believe this is true, he said, I never murdered anybody. But yeah. I said, he said, I would beat somebody to, to the edge of their life, you know, but, but I never murdered anybody because murder never goes away. That's a crime that the statute never runs on, and you always got to answer for that. There have been a number of people, Daniel, yes, that uh, wore the badge and decided that the money was better on the other side. Talk about that, Dan. Talk about some of the guys from law enforcement that went over to uh, to wear the pinstripe suit and then eventually wearing the, the big stripes. <laughs> <laughs> well, you had, obviously, um, you had law enforcement on the take, uh, both active and financially people uh stories of obviously cops being paid to look the other way uh certain people being paid to handle evidence and then some cops that moonlighted as enforcers uh however i'm curious this kind of ties back into what you were talking about earlier with the language and the nicknames and what or excuse me the, the the slang um they, they, the original FBI reports used to refer to law enforcement being involved in the waste management business. I was wondering if you could expand on what that meant exactly. Waste management, legitimate waste management, trash companies, that kind of stuff. I mean, well, no, no, the yeah. waste management was a, was a term for for, mm-hmm. or maybe the garbage business, perhaps they would call it. 
It was what was that? That was slang for organized crime, correct? Yeah, sanitation. I mean, that sanitation. Was, that was yeah. I mean, if law enforcement wanted to talk negatively, that's what they would say. These guys are in the garbage business. These guys okay. are garbage business. That kind of stuff. I thought you meant like I mean, solid waste management. I mean, not for nothing was Tony Soprano a solid waste management consultant. I mean, the mob in New Jersey has always been involved in the trash business. Well, I mean, they are now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> they, they, they legitimately. It's funny to say the mob is legitimately involved, but well, that's that's it, actually it, a good. It, it's a dichotomy. It's you know, it's a, a kind of an oxymoron, but they're that's they're that's actually a good point. We we started we started with the idea of like uh, long, you know you can't the, the make this sal- shit up, George. I know. The, we started with the low salary from law enforcement leading to the, the possibility of corruption. Well, let's flip the script on that. When you mentioned um, their involvement in, in garbage, obviously there's casinos and other things. Have there been cases where the mobs, their some of their legitimate fronts have become so successful they've abandoned the, cr- the crime com- side of it and just become legit? Does that happen or uh, is that just the fairy tale? I think there's a there's a lot of trash companies that make a lot of legitimate money, but they also make more by working illegitimate illegitimate operations as well. I don't know that anybody has said, "Wow, this is really better than being a street guy." I, I, I want to be a legitimate businessman. No, I don't. Most of those guys don't have that mindset. Most of those guys think working nine to five, you're a sucker. If you got to get up every day and go to work Monday through Friday, you're a sucker. And that's that. We don't want to do that. That's that's the mindset of a lot of these guys I've talked to. Well, let me ask you something. I don't know if it's tied to it, but in research, I saw it come up a lot when they talked about grunts and just the, the dirty handwork and some of the local people. The, the The word zip came up a lot. What is that? Zip is a, zip is a reference to some, an Italian immigrant. Usually it's a Sicilian. He's a zip. He's from Sicily. Okay. Know? He, he's he's not one of us. And that, that was one of the interesting things in the Stanford Marino War. Stanford was from Sicily, and he had brought in some young hitmen from Sicily, and they were the Zips. And, and it, there was, in the midst of that whole Stanford Merlino War, there was these, this cultural divide. You know, they were the South Philly corner boys, and he was this interloper from Italy who didn't even know where Broad Street was. It was that kind of thing. So that, that played it in, into that. Well, if you, if you know anything about the history of Sicily and Italy, um, up until recently, and I say recently in the past, you know, hundred years, uh, in the grand scheme of things, Sicily didn't even consider themselves Italian. They didn't want to be associated with well, Italy. They were Ita- Italians. Didn't consider them Italian either. Well, that, you're you're right. Yeah, it worked, it worked both ways. And you know, yeah. there's, still, there's still a lot of that in Italy. If you're from the south of Italy and you go to the north of Italy, a lot of times you'll be looked down upon. You know? Oh yeah. And, and let's talk about that. There's a lot of resentment within the culture itself, George. Well, um, I mean, that's, that's interesting, Angela. One of the things I say to people who, who aren't Italian is, you don't understand. Within the Italian culture, Sicilian, Nabolodan, Abruzzese, everybody has an identity separate and apart from just being Italian. And, and each has kind of a quirky trait. You know, Sicilians are secretive and dark. Uh, yeah. Nabolodan is, is, is a, a rooster. You know, somebody from Naples is a rooster. Yeah, there's exactly. A phrase, there's a phrase, faccio una bella figura, means put on a good face. But what it means is it's good to be good at what you do, but it's just as important to look good while you're doing it. That's Naples. Whereas in yeah. Sicily, you know. So well, it, it was yeah. always kind of a running joke, George, 
in my family, because uh, I'm Calabrese and Brucese, and they're known as murderers and chefs. And, and so uh, we could heart. fix you your last meal for you. <laughs> I mentioned that to Dominic Danucci the other night. Remember, Dan? Yes, I sir. said I was uh, Calabrese and Brucese. He went, oh, you're Calabrese. I went, yeah, Calabrese and Brucese. He went, oh, you're Brucese, huh? Yeah. <laughs> My wife is half Brucese, half Sigiliana. Brucese is the best cooks. Absolutely the best cooks. The food is great. Yes. I've, I've I'm been telling there. you. That's well, what I'm telling you. you know, the, uh, the Calabrese and Brucese, they're murderers and chefs. Any, anybody will tell you, and I'm sure you've seen it, and you guys, we're, we're all Italians here. It, Northern Italy, as far as cuisine and culture, and Southern Italy, as far as cuisine and culture, might as well be on two different planets. Oh, day and night. Oh, day and night. Yeah. Yeah. So. Day and night. And you know, southern, along those lines, better, you know, it was interesting because the first time I ever saw blonde-haired, blue-eyed Italian was my cousin from uh, Venice. Yeah. Uh, you know, they came here to, to visit. I never met her before. Beautiful, beautiful girl. But, you know, blonde hair, blue eyes from, and I said, she's Italian? Yeah, yeah. Like maybe she was, you know, French or... You know, one of George Anastasia's coffee drinking partners from Paris back then. <laughs> <laughs> but no, but there's a lot of blonde hair, blue eyed Italian. You know, Frank Sinatra was a blue eyed, blue eyed Italian. You know, yeah. people don't don't understand that. You know, we're well, we're, we're, we're a handsome group of people. We really are. I got to tell you that. I mean, you right, Daniel? Absolutely. At the history of Sicily, Sicily was always being overrun by a different country. The Greeks, the Moors, the French. Oh, yeah. I mean, everybody had a piece of Sicily one time or another. So genetically, that all becomes part of the genes. Sinatra well, was, you know, you Sinatra. mentioned the Moors. George, yeah. that's a really great segue because I just, I found this out recently. I want to see the what Moors invaded Sicily. Um, they raped and pillaged. They raped the women, killed the men. They impregnated a lot of the women, and but they gave birth to some of the prettiest babies in the world. These dark-skinned, you know, men and these fair-skinned women gave birth to these olive-skinned. I mean, look at me. Come on, okay. I'm yeah, but, probably a re George. Don't give me. That. <laughs> no, but, I mean, that's. I think that's part of the the charm of Sicily is it's, Sicily yeah, was a I mean, pot the, long before anybody else was a melting pot. It's I, just, I you know I joke about it, but you know I'm, the truth is that we're probably you know uh, as big a mixed bag of fish as anybody else, you know, uh, ethnically speaking. But uh, yeah, they sure did make some pretty babies. Well, um, speaking, yeah. Speaking yeah. of uh, if we're if we're touching on Sicilians. Um, a lot Don't of immigrants. Don't the Sicilians too well, much, okay? Because they watch the show. <laughs> well, that's, I mean, that's where my family's from, Sicily and Southern Italy. Like, I, you know, but but when we talk, it's funny because we're talking about the mob, you know, yeah. throughout Europe and Russia and Asia and, and you know Japan, all over the world. There's organized crime. When immigrants came to America, the Irish brought a mob. Jews, the Jewish. Right. People brought a mob. The Russians brought the mob. The, the Asian immigrants had their own sex of organized crime. Why is it whenever people say mob, they immediately just picture the Italian gangsters and are shocked to know anyone else in the world besides Italians have an organized crime? I think part of it is pop culture. Part of it is the media, the movies. I mean, if you look at the, the examples you just talked about, 
if you look in the media in, in America today, they talk about the Russian mafia, the Asian mafia, you know, it, 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 the black mafia. Well, yeah. that, that's an Italian word. And it stems from everybody has a frame of reference when you talk about Italian organized crime. And you're right. And if you look at the, the turn of the last century, Jews, Irish and Italians, large influx of immigrants, each of those groups had gangsters. Yet it's the Italians that have emerged as the dominant player. Uh, it, it's and I think it has a lot to do with, uh, you know, guys like Mario Puzo wrote the book then, yeah. and uh, Coppola made the movie and away we went. You know, and before George, that, I have a question for you, right, right along those lines, and it ties right into what you're talking about. The word mafia was that a desecration of the word familia, a family? That you know, that's a great question, Angela. There's a lot of different theories. Real quick, one is that it was a derivative of two Arabic words that meant hiding in a cave. Another was that it was an acronym for uh, "Death to the French, Italy cries." This is when the French dominated Sicily. But that can't work because, as you guys already mentioned, in the 15th, 14th century, when France controlled Sicily, there was no Italy. Sicily was Sicily. Yeah. The most romantic explanation, and I don't think this is true, but it's the one I like the best, is the French are controlling Sicily. And in a little village, uh, a young Sicilian maiden is married. And the French garrison of soldiers kidnap her and rape her on her wedding night. And her mother runs through the village crying, my daughter, my daughter. And Italian is my filia, my filia. But you know, the Sicilians, they swallow a lot of the, a lot of the uh, consonants. So she's crying, my filia, my filia. And the men of the village rose up. They slaughtered the garrison of French soldiers and went up into the hills. And that's where mafia came from. Interesting. I don't think that's, don't think that's true, but it's the one I like the best. I love it's that. that. I, I never heard that explanation. But where did the, then if, it's interesting because you get that and it's, you know, there's a tragic romance to that. Yeah. But then you hear something like the black hand. Right. Where did that, where did the, the acronym uh, of uh, the, uh, or the, I mean, the lexicon of the black hand come from? This was in, in New York at the turn of the last century when there was a big Italian uh, immigration population. And there was a group of, of gangsters Italians who preyed on Italian business people. If you had a push cart, if you had a store, and you would get a note and it would have a, a black handle, it would be a handprint in ink, put on a piece of paper, and you okay. would pull, if you had a push cart, you give us a dollar a week or we're gonna you wouldn't have a problem. You know, and they would destroy the push Protection cart. Protection money. Right. It was extortion. And the black hand, the, that was the black hand that was gangsters preying on their own. Eventually the, the gangsters evolved into racketeers and became dominant in the American. Yeah. That was at the beginning. Yeah. Were there, along those lines, were there, um, was there resistance between the traditional, to use that word, the traditional mafia uh, and the, the quote unquote black hand? Were there, was there conflict between these two groups at no, any point in our history? I don't think there was. It wasn't so much there were two groups. There were a lot, for, a lot of different factions of either the black hand and then it evolved into the mafia. There mm -hmm. were, there was always friction. Who controlled what neighborhood? Who was going to be able to shake down who? But it wasn't black hand versus mafia. It just was. A lot of times it would be the older mustache peats versus the young up and comers, like uh, Castellari's War in 1931. It was mm -hmm. Luciano and Costello and Lansky against 
the old time mob bosses and basically the young guys took over and that changed that modernized the American mafia. So. George, did was there ever a time that a rogue group of gangsters or, or mobsters organized and were accepted by the the more established mob? Or or were the or did you have to go through that chain of command or, or pay your you know for lack of a better word, but pay your dues to the you know, pay your tributes? No, I, I think it varied depending on where you are. I, I can remember in Philadelphia during the Bruno years, Harry Riccobini had his own little separate organization within the organization. And mm-hmm. Bruno was content to let Harry do what he needed to do. In North Jersey, there was a, a camp, the Campeses were involved. They were a subset of a, of a crime family up there. And most times, either you're paying some tribute or everybody's getting along because they're all making money. Yeah. Surprise the friction. No, it's not. I don't, I don't know too many examples of or that kind of stuff. Go ahead, Dan. Um, well, if we can, you know, continue with that. Uh, what Angela just brought up was a really good point with like these these infightings and and moving up. I'm curious. I asked uh, last episode about how the the pop culture portrayal impacted people wanting to be gangsters and wanting to get involved in organized crime. How would say someone not tied to the family, just some random immigrant or some random kid on the street? How do you approach the family to say, hey, I want to run for you guys. I want to be, you know, break legs or whatever. How, how, do you, how does that go about? Well, usually you, gotta, you, you know somebody and then you got to do something to prove yourself or, or else maybe you're making a little bit of money on your own. You're, you're running your own book and you're going to edge off to these guys. I mean, they, get they the don't money. accept resumes anymore, George. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I mean, access, access, you just can't go knock on the door and say, hey, I want to be a gangster. Usually it's, you know, a guy that knows a guy, you've been actively involved, you've done some stuff and, you know, somebody will spot you and say, yeah, he knows what he's doing. Let's bring him in. Let's, let's, you know, you become an associate and, and you work your way up the ladder. That's what usually what happens, you know. And if you, if you're a thug and you want to be violent, you can fast track, but you know, that's a lot of times. And they- the term they use for that, again, more mafia terminology, the term they use for that, ladies and gentlemen, is called making your bones. Making your bones, doing some work. Yeah, that's doing some work. They used to call it paying your dues, but that was too general, too broad. Making your bones. Yeah. Go ahead, Danny. Well, then continuing with that being involved, um, I I know one of the tricks you you touched on it earlier with people turning and and with misprotection and whatnot. what were what was the the likelihood or method for trying to implant a mole or a uh, somebody like that, like somebody who's working for who was who was uh, working with the police from day one? Well, if it, it, an F, FBI undercover agent like Donnie Brasco would would start hanging out at, a, at the bars and restaurants where wise guys hang out and pose as a you know the Donnie Brasco pose as moving stolen jewelry that kind of stuff and and establish himself that that's Usually, what they do with another so no, no pun intended, but it's more of the long con. You have to really, you could spend months building a backstory oh, or building a reputation. Absolutely, for the undercover operations that have worked have been long term. I mean, you you don't just all of a sudden you're you're sitting down with with the capital talking about stuff. You're sitting down with a, a, a wise guy, and maybe you become an associate of that that guy, and eventually you get introduced into the family and other people, and then start hanging out with the group. But no, it's not. You can't just go, yeah, I'm a bad guy. I want to be with you guys. 
So yeah. Donnie Brasco, who was uh, uh, in reality is Joseph Pistone, right. uh, FBI, um, a veteran FBI agent, uh, his infiltration took years, George. Um, and I saw an interview he did recently. Um, it really affected him. Uh, he said, you know, you and I were just talking about, you and I and Dan were just talking about the likability factor. Some of these guys are very likable. Oh, yeah. And, yeah, and, and uh, Joe Pistone had a real problem uh, at one point, you know, not that you know, he always knew his job, but he had a real problem, you know, he had to like walk away when when the the hammer finally came down on his crew, you know. Yeah. And when they showed, you know, his picture to these yeah. people and said, "Do you know this guy?" Well, he's an FBI informant. You know, he's an agent. He's one of us. You know, they went crazy and it, it broke his heart because you know he's he was like tight with these guys. He broke bread with them. You know, he hung out with their families and you know, uh, particularly the. Uh, the Al Pacino character, who you kind of had to feel sorry for because he was just such a, a, a mama Luke, you know? Lefty, um, yeah, Lefty Ruggiero, yeah. Yeah, Lefty, you know. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> the last of the old-time characters, Lefty Ruggiero was a unique individual. Not real bright. He, uh, You know, the lights weren't always on in his apartment. <laughs> but, uh, but Dan, you know where we're going with that is that... Uh, you know, for we we love the the bad guy. You know, even in yeah, wrestling, you know, we we love the heel. It, it's uh, unfortunately, you, you, you know, far too often uh, in in real life, these heels they end up being really nice guys, George. Um, but on sadly, what they do is uh, you know is illegal. It's against the law, and uh, you know, and it makes not only us as a people, the Italian people look bad, but it paints us with this brush that, you know, if you're Italian, you got to be connected somewhere, somehow, you know, I remember growing up when I was a kid, oh, well, your name's Decipio, so you're in the mafia. Yeah. You know, you, you let, let's imagine, talk, let's address the, uh, imagine that. Yes, yeah, imagine that, Dan, right? Oh, I, yeah, I got that too. Like, Dan got it, especially Dan, because he's from, the Philadelphia, New Jersey area, but he's in Norfolk, Virginia, in witness protection right now. <laughs> now he well, actually always, works for the United I, States Navy. God bless him, and I, God bless our Navy. I always, but, I always tell know, people. Go ahead, Dan. I always, I always tell people, you know, that because I, have, I still have family up there. I, as an Italian, I'm required by law to have at least one cousin that lives in New Jersey. <laughs> exactly. exactly. Well, I mean, do they refer to you as an Italian? You're, <laughs> I, Italian. I mean, I think the further you away, farther you are away from an urban center where there's been an ethnic Italian community, the less you understand, and the more easy it is to buy into the stereotypes. Right. You know. Yeah. George, you don't even want to know what happened to me, brother. I lived in Tennessee for 15 years. God bless you. And I made a joke. It was the first, last, and only time I ever did that because I'm going to tell you what happened. I got to Tennessee. I was there it was my first week in Tennessee. The store clerk says, you ain't from around here. I said, no, I'm not. Where are you from? New Jersey. What are you doing? What, what brings you here? That was his quote. What brings you here? I said, and I quote, witness protection program. 
He called the fucking police. <laughs> I'm not kidding you. He called the police. You can't make this stuff yeah. up. And I That's said, funny. no, it was a joke. Yeah. I'm Italian, yes. I'm from New Jersey, yes. But I'm not in the program. Call the FBI. <laughs> Go ahead, Dan. Rescue me from this shit. <laughs> well, <clears throat> excuse me. You know, what he was talking, you mentioned with the uh, the stereotype and how the further you are away. I'm curious then to expand on, obviously, Jersey has one. Well, I lived in Maryland for a while. Baltimore had one. Uh, parts of Virginia have them. The, what is it about the Italian populations and specifically, you know, unfortunately, the, that kind of stereotype where pretty much every major city has a little Italy that has, you know, an area where it, it, that's just they something about Italian immigrants. They kind of all tend to group together, whereas you can see, mm -hmm. you know, there's there's three or four different Irish neighborhoods or areas where, you know, the, the Jews or, or blacks live. And, and but there's always only just that one big area that everybody knows that's that's the Italian neighborhood. Like, what what is it about exactly. Italians that tend to do that? Well, you know, I think I think partly is just a sense of family, and you want to be around your cousins, your uncles, your aunts. You know, and I think what happened with the, if you look with the mafia, the mafia took the values of the Italian American experience, honor, loyalty, and a sense of family, and they bastardized it to their own ends. But the Italian community believes in those so, same principles. Honor, loyalty, blood loyalty, and, and family is more important than anything. And then the other thing is, let's sit around and have a good meal. Let's, let's have, you know, that's, that's Ooh, very important. Exactly. And a lot of, I mean, one of the things, Ooh. I think one of the reasons Tony Soprano and the Sopranos were so popular was that people were living vicariously. People who were what we would call metagons got, got to, to see and try to be a part of that, you know. Let's have, exactly. a, let's have a dinner, you know, that kind of stuff. Let's have some food. Let's have gabagool, you know, with that kind of stuff. It's all. It's very infectious, George. It really, really is. I got to tell you, uh, you know, in, in all seriousness, when I was in Tennessee, I spent 15 years in Tennessee. I got to tell you, brother, the the busiest restaurants were always the Italian restaurants. Yeah. The uh, Italian centers were always where the people wanted to be. It's our, our culture as a people is just infectious. Uh, our music, uh, our lifestyle, our entertainment, uh, our comedy. I mean, some of the people that made me laugh were Lou Carey, Pat Cooper. Um, uh, oh, my God. Uh, who the hell else is it? Oh, God. Um, I'm one, oh, George, I'm having a brain fart. What was his name? Um, uh, I don't know. Oh, Rossi. Uh, um, Rossi. Allen and Rossi. Right. Uh, uh, yeah, Marty Allen and Steve Rossi. Handsome guy. A singer, funny, uh, with a, a big, oh. tall, good-looking Italian guy and a short, fat Jew. Yeah, Martin and Lewis. They yeah, exactly. Lewis. They, they set the... It, exactly. Exactly. Uh, and our, it's funny that you mention that because our culture is also closely associated with the Jews. Again, the sense of family, music, culture. Um Let's talk, I'm going to take a, a segue here, um, and I want to talk about uh, your latest book, which is Gotti's Rules, and the, the new one, and I'm going to let you introduce the new one to everyone. Uh, tell us uh, why this book, Gotti's Rules, is, uh, is so controversial. Um, I shared with you before we went on the air some information brought to my attention by a... Um, 
will just say, and I'm not, I'm not going to give them any credit, and and I certainly don't want you to, but a uh, a rival website will say uh, that took a big giant dump on you and John A. Light. Yeah, yeah. I mean, God is rules is built around John A. Light's story. John A. Light was a, a Gambino crime family associate. wasn't a member because he's Albanian, but he was a, a a major player in that era, and, and he he was connected to John Gotti Jr. And the friction is between A-Light and John Gotti Jr. Now, John Gotti Jr. and his family hate the book Gotti's Rules. And basically, I mean, look, John Gotti Jr., his sister, their family, they see their father, John Gotti Sr., as their father. And, you know, they have a different perception of it. But they've helped create this myth of who John Gotti Sr. really was. And the reality is, I think, the, the John Gotti Sr. that John A. Light talks about which is a guy who ran the crime family into the ground. And I had another member of the Gambino family back then tell me, you know, this was supposed to be our thing. When John became the boss, it was my thing. You know, it was everything was about him. Yeah. So, and Gotti was an example of this celebrity gangster. Look at me, I'm a gangster. Called yeah. So Gotti's, Gotti's rules is John A. Light's story, how he got involved and how he came to testify against Gotti Jr. And one of Gotti's rules, for example, the father, one of the rules is don't deal drugs. But if you're dealing drugs, I want a piece of the action. That's the hypocrisy of John Gotti Sr. And the other thing in the, in the Gotti's Rules book that I think gets under the skin of Gotti Jr. is that at one point, John Gotti Jr. tried to cut a deal with the feds. He sat down and had what they call a proffer session where he yes. offered to give up information. And a proffer session, if anybody doesn't know, you sit down and you, and you tell the government what you have and they decide whether to take you on or not. If they don't take you on, nothing you said can be used against you. So Gotti has this proper session, Gotti Jr. They call it Queen for your Queen for a Day, that old TV show. Well, George, if, if you mind me interjecting for a moment, isn't that the height of hypocrisy, though? Well, yeah, yeah. And 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 in Gotti's rules, we among the, the things that are in the book is a reproduction of the five-page. FBI memo about John Gotti Jr. sitting down with the feds and offering up all kind of information about murder, bribery, extortion, that kind of stuff. And then he wants to step away and say, no, nah, you know, I'm a stand up guy. Well, a light yeah. who was and the book opens with it, a light in this horrible prison in Brazil. He's hearing about Gotti Jr. making a deal and a light saying, what, what am I standing up for? Why am I being a stand up guy? And that's when a light flips. So there's a lot of animosity between the two. That's a long answer to your question, but that's that's where it comes from. The other In the interest of full disclosure, yeah. I did not read the book, but I did, quite frankly, listen to all nine and a half hours of the audio book. So uh, I did I did listen to your audio book. It's a it's a long listen. It's about nine and a half, almost ten hours of listening. Um, I'm not much of a of a reader. Um, cause I'm always busy doing other stuff, but I did listen to that and it's extensive and I encourage everybody if you, if you're not inclined to sit and read a book and you just want to listen to the audio book, it is available. It's, it's still available on a number of platforms It's just to search Gotti's rules, audio book, George Anastasia is the author, uh, with, the it's the story of John a light, a, 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 a self confessed murderer extortionist uh you know jack of all trades in the world of organized crime uh, he did it all and 
The other interesting thing about John A. Light, I mean, I genuinely like John. I met him. He, he contacted me and he was looking for somebody to write a book about him. But the thing that fascinated me about John is he ended up getting arrested in Brazil. That's He was on the run for a couple of years, and that's how he ended up in a Brazilian prison. But John A. Light, when he decided he had to get out of town, basically he said to me, look, if I stayed, either I was going to have to kill Junior or Junior was going to kill me. So yeah. I decided to leave. And he had enough money. He took off. Now, guys in Philadelphia, a couple of guys went on a run, and, and they went to Brigantine or the Poconos. That's like the edges of the universe. You can't go any further. Yeah. <laughs> John A. Light was in France. He was in Albania. He was in Spain. He was in Africa. He was in and out of Cuba, Venezuela. Colombia, Brazil. He w- went to all these places and he thoroughly enjoyed exposure to different cultures, started to speak different languages. He's a different type of guy. He's, yeah. you know, and that's that's one of the things that I that I tried to get in the book. But also that's one of the things that I, to me made him more believable. He was he was he never tried to sugarcoat what he did and never, never tried to spin it. He was what he was. He understands how terrible it was. And now he's trying to change his life. And and that's, I think, what's yeah. under Gotti Jr.'s skin. Dan, explore the uh, the avenue of the smart gangster. Well, when you mentioned, you know, how you said he was a different kind of guy. And we had talked earlier in the program. You talked about how some of the, the people that were getting wiretapped didn't quite understand it. What kind of... World, I don't want to say worldly success. That sounds too cliche. But when you have somebody who speaks multiple languages, who might be educated in, you know, various things prior to or during their time with the families and with the crime, organized crime, what kind of success rate or or leg up do you have when you're that kind of worldly person versus some of the? I mean, and and it happens because of how culturalized the Italian communities are, where you could live your entire life without going ten miles from the the hospital you were born in, you know. It, yeah. So, so what's the what kind of a, a difference do you have there as far as success, moving up, that kind of thing? Well, if you accept the fact that organized crime is now international as opposed to being local, and I think by and large it is international, then the better you are at interacting with other kind of ethnic groups, and if you speak a little bit of the language, Spanish, for example, if you're in the drug underworld, I mean, all of those things are uh, there. There are things that you can use to advance your trade. It's just like any other business. You know, if you're bilingual and you're an international businessman, it's going to help you out. Same thing with this. You know, the other thing is, in, in terms of the economics, I thought that's where you are going to go with this, Dan, is some guys know how to make money. Some well, guys know how I was to make I was going to have you expand on that because you did, we touched on it on the last episode, the international flair. Obviously, when people think international crime, they picture, you know, the drugs coming in from this, you know, the, through the border and, and Mexico and Colombia and all. But there's a lot of money to be made in international racketeering, in international you know uh, trade, there's you you talked about even things like gambling. I know there's a lot of gambling Dan, that goes can on. I, in can I can I throw like something in here, Dan? Yeah, go ahead. Can I add something and then I'll let you and George talk? Here's one for you: the internet. Yeah. How has the internet changed the way the mob does business? Well, internet gambling is a big example, and in, mm-hmm. in, internet gambling setting setting up those kind of operations. The other, the other thing about internet gambling that's an advantage for the guy running the book is you can use your credit card. You can bet on credit. I yeah. mean, that, that's one of the things that a mob bookmaker has going over a sports book in, in Vegas. In Vegas, you're going to put your money up when you place your bet. A mob bookmaker, you, you can bet on credit for three, four weeks before you got to settle up. 
you know, and yeah. he, Campbell's going to keep chasing and keep chasing. That's what happens. But in terms of the money flow, I mean, big time guys, international, they can get money coming in from drugs. They can get, get money coming in from a stolen car ring, you know, stealing cars here, putting them on a boat and sending them over there, that kind of stuff. There's a lot of ways to make money, but you can also be a big earner locally. You don't have to be international. I mean, Ronnie Previty was an example of that. Previty had money coming in from bookmaking, from gambling, from brothels, from extortion, all kind of cash flow. And, and, and that's what he was very entrepreneurial. And Ronnie used to say, he would talk about Joey Molino, and he would say, basically, Joey Molino's problem is Joey's agenda on Monday is to get to Tuesday. Joey just get the money, spend the money, where Ronnie said, you got to establish a flow. You got to have money coming in, just like a businessman. That's, well, you know. then, then let me ask you, because we, we, you, you said how it goes international. Is there still the the small family rings where, you know, you might have a couple dozen guys that run 20, you know, 10, 20 city blocks and that's it? Like the, the, the old school mafia that people picture? Well, I think you see that in the drug underworld, especially uh, you take Philadelphia, for example. There's no one dominant drug organization. It's mostly it's neighborhood run. You know, and, and this is my corner, that's your corner kind of thing. So, yeah, you see a lot of that. And, and in terms of in terms of the mob, I mean, you want to talk about the mafia. The mafia is not the dominant player anymore in the American underworld. And, and you know, the other thing that's really hurt them is COVID. Think about it. I mean, sports betting is a big moneymaker. Well, mm-hmm. it's only just recently we started to have any sports. So, you know, they were hit that way as well. And they don't get Yeah, any- you know, it's, it's funny, Where? George, we oh, talked about that. Uh, on the last show, you know, how, you know, when Matt Granahan was here, and by the way, Matt is is actually uh, on his way to Abu Dhabi to promote a fight right now. So that's why Matt's not here. But um, on the last show, and I think it might have been Dan that brought it up, is, uh, you know, how um, uh, how you know, COVID uh, and all the other social ills have affected, you know, the mob's cash flow. But uh, the one thing that that and we had, we talked about this before, the one thing that hasn't been affected is the drugs. Uh, largely, though, on the street level, it's the Jamaicans, it's uh, African American communities, um, local neighborhood kingpins, uh, big in the for whatever reason the uh, the Jamaican drug cartels and the the uh, the South American drug cartels are huge in uh, inner city areas chicago philadelphia new york you know all these you know the you know, big city hotbeds uh, miami of course uh, down south but uh, go ahead dan explore it I'm, I'm sorry to jump in there but go ahead no you're okay i was actually hoping um before we get into that you you touched on something maybe uh you, you said that the mob, the mafia, as people think of it, it's not the dominant player in organized crime in the United yeah. States anymore. Well, two two part question for that then. One, who is? And two, where would you say the mob ranks now? Yeah, I don't think we know who is. And, you know, and partly it may be, you mentioned earlier, Russian organized crime. Russian organized crime is still very much an ethnic operation and you can't pierce the shield of ethnicity. You can't get into those Russian communities yet. They haven't been Americanized. Enough. You know, you haven't, you don't know the face of Russian organized crime. John Gotti could be the face of the American mafia. Who's the, the Russian mob boss in America? We don't know. Somebody is, we just don't know. And you've got Hispanic, you got Hispanic drug gangs, you got uh, 
Asian organized crime. Asian organized crime has been around forever, but it's basically kept to itself, kept within its own community. So that those groups maybe have learned from the mafia. You don't want to become too Americanized. You become more Americanized, second and third generation. And that's what happened, I think, with the Italians. Second and third generation Italian-Americans, yeah. the best and the brightest are doctors and lawyers and educators. And the mafia. Yeah, absolutely. You know? I mean, I'll vouch for that. That's, I, that's, have, uh, I have a, uh, a niece that's a nurse. I have a, a nephew that's a doctor. I have a, another nephew that's a, a high-powered uh, makeup executive. But, well, that, that, but That's one of the things that, I don't want to get political, but one of the things that bothers me about this anti-immigration movement is my grandparents came to this country in 1910, 1920. They didn't speak English. They didn't have a skill. If you put that kind of prohibition, I wouldn't be sitting here today. So, you know, immigrants bring a lot to this country, whatever the immigrant. George, if you take every immigrant out of this country, you won't have a country, brother. I got news for you. We're not yep. a country that we love. No. We are a country. of This country is immigrants. That's, yeah. There are no real Americans. There are no real well, Americans. Native yeah. The, the, the Native Americans, yeah. But the there Native. wasn't even a name for the country when they were yeah. here. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You mentioned the drugs, and, and I wanted to segue a little oh, bit. Oh, George, before you, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, George, before you get into that, we have to really clarify something because it pisses me off when people say, you know, it's American as apple pie. Well, if you really want to get down to it, folks, <laughs> let's talk about it. it should be American as a bowl of pasta because this country is named after an Italian. His name was Americo Vespucci, and he was Christopher Columbus, another Italian. He was Christopher Columbus's navigator. So you owe us, all right? Where's my reparation? Well, he, I mean, he right? drew the map, and he had America, his name at the bottom of the map, and that's where we got America. Yeah. Yep. That's what you know, doing. they talk about Black Lives Matter, Italian Lives Matter too. I want my reparation. Everybody, everybody. Matters. Well, we we oh. we had we I'll had ours. Now, George. Um, <laughs> you know, it, you you said it. The 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 best and brightest Italians, you know, doctors, lawyers, politicians, running the country. It was the doofuses left over that that do you know end up hosting podcasts. <laughs> well, yeah, right. <laughs> no, it's the truth, though. People lose sight of the fact that this country was founded by an Italian. It was chartered by an Italian, but yet no mention of you know it, it's American yeah. is this American let's, is that. Well, I got news for you. Let's not let's let's not glorify Columbus too much. He was a piece of shit. Yeah, there's there's you know history history was kind kind to Columbus, and I think. Post Columbus, it's 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 less kind. I, I think that's the yes. way. Well, you you wanted to, to to circle back to what we were talking about. You had just started on uh, economics, so yeah, yeah. I mean, the economics of organized crime. That it, it's. I, I think I mentioned this the last time I was on. A guy told me vice is vice is commerce. That's the way you have to look at it. Vice is commerce. Whatever way you can make money, you try to make money, and and the better organized you are the more money you're going to make. And that's what organized crime is about. If they're organized mm-hmm. and they run an operation, they can they can be successful and they can stay under the radar. That's where violence creates problems because now you got the spotlight. You know, if you can if you can get away with it without the violence, you can have a pretty long run. And especially now with other ethnic groups that are emerging and with terrorism becoming a priority, law enforcement doesn't have the same resources aimed toward the mafia as it did say 30, 40 years ago. But the other thing I wanted to mention, we talked about drugs. Another big drug is the opioid crisis. 
That's really mm. and yeah. that's the the current book that I have out called Doctor Dealer is about a doctor in Atlantic County was running running a pill mill with the pagan biker gang and getting opioids out on the street and then he hired one of the pagans to kill his wife. Yes. Uh, his name was James Kaufman. The, the woman who was killed was April Kaufman. It was a famous murder down in Atlantic County in 2012. She was a radio personality. So and that's what the new book is about. It's called Dr. Dealer, and it's about that case. If uh, if you're watching this and you don't know who uh, Dr. Kaufman and uh, his wife April Kaufman were, uh, just Google them. There will Hundreds and hundreds of results will come up, thousands of results. Uh, it was a well-documented uh, murder. The trial was covered nationally. It is uh, one of the most uh, horrific murder cases because of the deviousness of it. What this guy didn't put his wife through was just uh, crazy. Remarkable that uh, that a woman had to endure this 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 level of torture. Right. Uh, and I'll and I won't tip the hat, but I'll leave it at that. No. But, and yeah. Seems- Go ahead, James Dan. Kaufman killed himself, hung himself in jail rather than stand trial. Yeah. So it's it's an interesting, really interesting story. I, I think I might have mentioned this before. I mean, I've, I've written a lot about gangsters and wise guys, but James Kaufman, Thomas Capano, the lawyer from Wilmington, I wrote a book about called The Summer Wind, and uh, Rabbi Newlander and Cherry Hill. Yes. Three guys with power, wealth, and status. Yes. All three of them, two of them killed their wives, one of them killed his mistress. Those yeah. guys are more despicable than any mob boss, any mobster I've ever written about. Those Absolutely. guys were going for them, and they thought literally they could get away with murder. And this latest book is about another, is about James Kaufman, who's one of those guys. Yeah. Yep. Thomas Capano, of course, was a uh, a high profiled, high powered uh, a Delaware attorney. Right. Absolutely. Uh, Rabbi Fred Newlander uh, uh, was a congregant over one of the largest. Uh, Jewish congregations in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, if not the largest, um, who had a, a rather sordid, very public affair with a, uh, a Philadelphia radio personality named Elaine Sonsini, who right. herself was uh, a married woman, married to a man in a wheelchair named Ken Garland, a, uh, well, a legend in Philadelphia broadcasting. Uh, absolutely. Uh, and, and the way Elaine Sonsini meets the rabbi is when Ken is dying. He finally dies. She asked the rabbi to officiate at his funeral, and that's how they connect. Yeah, sort of. You're right. It's a very sordid story. Very. It's really just you can't make this stuff up. It's like this is the stuff that movie scripts are made out of, George. It really is. Some of the better um, ones. Go ahead, Danny. No, I was agreeing with you. It's some of the better ones that you know. That's. Yeah, I think we touched on this when we talked about the cinema with The Godfather and with you know Goodfellas and. John uh, Donnie Brasco and some of those where it's, a lot of this just writes itself. And yeah. if I remember correctly, uh, George, you mentioned uh, uh, Donnie Brasco being one of the most accurate portrayals of organized crime. Yeah, I think Donnie Brasco and Goodfellas are the are the most accurate. I mean, the Godfather movies one and two are great cinema, but I think in terms of being realistic, Goodfellas and and Donnie Brasco are the two best and, and showing you the way their life really is. Absolutely. George, I saved the best for last because we're going to have some fun with this guy. Go ahead. <laughs> the Godfather. The character in The Godfather named Carlo. He's an actor, singer, uh, performer. You're laughing because you know where I'm going. Go ahead. 
Johnny Russo. Right. Okay. Johnny Russo, right. Johnny Russo is uh, is making headlines here uh, as of late and doing a lot of interviews. Claims to have information on the Kennedy assassination. Claims to know who killed Jimmy Hoffa. Uh, <laughs> Dan, I can't make this shit up, brother. Listen no. to the interview. I, have you read his? I read his book. I read his book. Um, I'm I'm actually listening to the audio book. I got it in a bookcase behind me. Johnny Russo tells a great story, but my take on Johnny Russo is he's the Forrest Gump of the underworld. He was present at every major event in the underworld. Well, yeah, I mean, this guy's like, he's got the world secrets, brother. Yeah, yeah. the Kennedy assassination. Uh, he he met with, uh, with the, the uh, Pablo Escobar. He yeah. had a conversation with Pablo Escobar. Sure. Uh, I mean... They had coffee at a French bistro, George. And he also had an affair with Marilyn Monroe. I mean, it, it just yeah. goes on and on and on. And, and it's yeah. a great read. I'm not sure how much of it is true. And Well, it, that's what I'm getting at. Let's talk about this guy. He's got more, you know, he's, he, <laughs> he's got more tentacles than an octopus. This guy, holy shit. Um, you know, if you believe Johnny Russo, and he's... He's a compelling character because he's a character. Yeah. He reminds you uh, he's still he's the, he's the open collar, 12 chains around his neck. He's still old school. Yeah. You know? He's 1976, you know, he's he lives in Yeah. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's in, in perfect George. He's in a time warp. Yeah. Um I'm wondering <laughs> how much of his uh his brain stayed in that that time warp because uh, he can't seem to remember anything past 1980. But yeah, he uh, he made love to Marilyn Monroe. He was present with Pablo Escobar. Um, he met with Sam Giancana. He did all this. He you know, he plotted. He was at a seat at the at every major event that that shaped world history from 1963 to 1976. He, you know, he, ran, he ran money through the Vatican Bank. He got the Shah of Iran out of the, some of his money out of Iran. It goes it goes on and on and on. And, and he negotiated really does he negotiated the deal in New York to allow the filming of The Godfather. That's what he says. That I know. I, I heard him say so, that. I mean, this guy, this guy, and he claims a lot. And the book is it's an easy read. It's it's well written. I just don't know how much of it is fact and how much of it is. And a lot of the well, guys he's written not, about it. Yeah, and I wanted to have a little fun with that because I'm, I'm going to hit you with a serious question. How much of that does he open himself up to libel? Well, if you if you really look at what he's written, most of the stuff he's writing about are about people who are dead, or you know you can't you can't libel Sam Giancana, you can't libel Al Capone, you can't libel a notorious gangster because what do you, how are you going to hurt their reputation? Right. Well, yeah, I mean, that's there, there's a there's a legit point to that. But I mean, you have to think to yourself at some point, somebody's going to say you call bullshit on it, you know? Well, they, yeah, they can call bullshit on it. But I don't know that there's any legal ramifications based on the stuff he's writing. And he's allowed them to make money. He's making money. I mean, you know, well, I, no question about he's still entertained. Go ahead, Dan. Not not to get all conspiracy, but we we've touched on this before on the show. Well, with, go ahead, you know, Dan. With, with, what I mean is is you know I I we had a, a the when the Sage Quay was on, I asked him about why if everything he's saying is true with how powerful these people are with taking people out, how come you're still alive? 
is the fact that he's out there doing book tours and talking about this and nobody's tried to shut him up. Is that evidence enough that he's full of crap? No, no, because I think if you read his book, he's, he hasn't hurt anybody. It's not like he's implicated anybody in a crime who's going to have some repercussions from what he's saying. He's talking about stuff that had happened in history. And basically, as I said, it's like Forrest Gump. He's present. You know, he's present when the guns were run down to, yeah. to, for the Kennedy assassination. He was going yeah. into a with Carlos Marcello when Lee Harvey Oswald was coming out of the meeting. I mean, it, it's this crazy, crazy. Yeah, he was there stuff. when Elvis recorded Heartbreak Hotel. I mean, it's yeah, Angela, you're right. It's that. So yeah. it, it it stretches credibility. That's all I want. Oh, man, the stretches credibility. Jesus. Holy shit, brother. Oh, my God. Well, I'll tell you what, George. Uh <laughs> It seems like, you know, we did an hour, then we did another hour here, hour and a half. I got to tell you, brother, we could, I can make you a regular feature on here and never get tired of talking to you. Um, the book is Dr. Dealer. The next book has got his rules. The other book after that is, there's a list of about 4,000 books. That you're, <laughs> you know, you've got what, that 32, George, 30 books. No, not that many. I've already got about Six or seven. And then oh, okay. Yeah, well, that. I mean, between the articles and stuff, you probably got several hundred. Yeah. Absolutely. But no, oh, there's you. another 30 books in there, George. Come on, get to work on them now. Dan, any uh, any parting questions for George Anastasia? No, we, we touched on a lot. And I do hope that you come back because we're still plenty more to talk oh, about. Yeah. And I think the fact that it's, it's you know, as we would say growing up, the fact that there's a couple of Goombas goofing <laughs> off, you know, it means more. This conversation means more to us than it would anybody else. Absolutely. No, I appreciate it. And I enjoyed talking to both of you guys. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Absolutely. George, thank you so much. You are a welcome guest here anytime. Um, you're, uh, you're close by, uh, I hope to run into you at the, uh, at the supermarket one day, get to shake your hand and sign my book for me. Um, or at least let me buy you dinner somewhere. Sounds good, Angela. Thank George you. George Anastasia is one of our favorite people. We love having you here and, uh, and I can't wait to read Dr. Dealer. All right. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Take care. And, uh, and, and again, I can't thank you enough for being here. All right. You're the best. Thanks so much. Take care. George Anastasia, everybody. That was a great, great show with George. Yes, sir. Great show. So, Dan. Yes, sir. We have, uh, we've been racking him up here lately. These oh, Italians yeah. are coming out of the woodwork. We had Dominic <laughs> come out. We, got say, George we, we, Anastasia have, coming we out. have had a bit of a run, haven't we? We have. I'm telling you, brother. It's, man, we're getting all the goombas to use your. <laughs> They're all coming out of the woodwork for us. Oh, my God. Oh, by the way, speaking of Dominic Danucci, speaking of Goombas, I talked to Dominic today and um, he I'll tell you what I would my my phone call with Dominic could have been a podcast. Okay, <laughs> I was on the phone as long today with Dominic as he was on the show with us the other night. Oh, geez. He, when he gets on a, a roll, he just you just got to sit there and let him talk and go. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> smile and nod, right? Ah, uh, smile and nod. I, I love that, man. I'll tell you what. I really do. That was a great conversation with George Anastasia. Really, really good. Informative, oh, yeah. enlightening, had a little fun. I think the fact that it was just you and I tonight, though, Dan, that we actually had a, a chance to really kind of um, 
you know, pull back a couple more layers of the onion and uh, and get into why uh, why we love the mob so much, why we're fascinated with these characters. Right. You know. Um, so let me get your take on it. You're the smartest guy in the room, so you tell me. And you know, because you have to, because it says so on your Twitter that you're the smartest right. guy. Yeah. Uh, so what's your take on this? What, why are we fascinated with the, the bad guys, with the heels? Well, I mean, it goes to, we talked about it with it, but plenty of times with, with wrestling, when you have people like, say, a, a, the Four Horsemen or uh, Jerry Lawler, uh, some of the, you know, the, the Freebirds, some of these guys who were playing the heel characters. But if you're likable and relatable and your motives make sense, which is something we've talked about before with the the current product, where he, there's no face or heel because no one has the the motives that you can understand. Like, why are you two fighting? Um, Jim Cornette used to say that the three most important things I got to know: who's fighting, who uh, who's the good guy, who's the bad guy, and why they're fighting. And exactly. You know, you, you, when you see the the mob and a lot of these guys, you, you know, you you oh, we're in it for the money and the family loyalty, and it's like um. George mentioned those tenants of being Italian are very, for lack of a better word, it's a romantic lifestyle. Exactly. You're loyal to the family. You're loyal to your mom. You got good food, you know, Sunday night, Sunday dinner after church or whatever. And yeah, okay, we're running racketeering. Well, that's like I said on our very first show. Yeah, Dan, as I remember when I said on our very first show, in fact, it might have been one of the one of my opening lines was, you know, uh, why have we romanticized the gangster? Yeah, well, they, when, you when know, you create... and, uh, you know, and I think you've given a, a really solid explanation as to why, you know, um, there is a correlation between, you know, and it's funny because the, the, to hear George talk about, you know, Angelo Bruno, the, the late, the late Philadelphia mafia boss. Being a nice guy, mm-hmm. and but they they say he was a really sweet old man, who just happened to order the murder of people, right? <laughs> you know, but well, he looked it, like you remember his picture from before. He looked like a, uh, you know, somebody's grandfather. Yeah, and that's that's the thing. You look through some of the big names. You know, uh, you, you talked about some of the Italian gangsters, even some of the I, th- I touched on it last show. Someone like Pablo Escobar, who he everybody knew what he was doing, but he was taking that drug money and he was building schools and housing for the poor and soccer fields. Many of those apartment complexes and and field houses, they still use in Colombia. It's his, still his picture painted on the yeah. murals. You know, yeah, he was blowing up cars and killing people and, and <laughs> yeah. killing soldiers and cops. But. You know, some people were willing to kind of, I don't want to say look the other way, but, you know, when you see this, like in The Godfather, you know, and everybody or or in Goodfellas and these likable characters, these you know, Tony Sopranos who are really not good people, but relatable, likable people, eh, you know, you know, he, he you beat up some guy. I'll bet that question, guy was a jerk Dan. anyway. You yeah. just, you just prompted a question, young fella. Um, in war... They call it collateral damage. Yes. So let me ask you a question. Have, are these guys creating their own collateral damage for the better good, for the greater good of their organization? This, these, the, you know, the hits on people, um, 
you know, for la- for for a lack of a better term, it's you know, it's collateral damage for you know, for all intents and purposes. Yeah, I think I think if you're if you're doing hits, yes, um, I think that's I don't want to say okay, but you're you have someone who needs to die, or or you when you need them to die, I should say, and they're the only ones that they take the hit. When you start looking at the the you know car bombs and uh, the 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 early mobster days like you know the St. Valentine's Day massacre and some of these you know drive by where I'm I got to kill one guy and you end up shooting nine people in front of the restaurant yeah that's that's more collateral I think when it's precision it's not as bad but the the problem and and George touched on it is the 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 mob had such a good thing going and their push for just a little bit more is what opened the can of worms. Well, and I'll tell you where and when that happened. And it's interesting because you brought up two vivid examples um, of how things go wrong. Um, keeping in mind that the mob doesn't like to draw attention to itself. The St. Valentine's Day massacre in Chicago drew all kinds of attention. Right. The kind of attention you don't want. That's one example. But where it went off the rails is when uh, little Nicky Scarfo in Philadelphia decided that uh, because he's the boss now, he has the right to wipe out pretty much everybody uh, in the city. Uh, And he instigated a three-year war against every family in the city of Philadelphia that resulted in the death of some 26, 27 people. Um, mostly his own associates, which is the, the funny part. It's not funny, haha, it's a, right. ironic, but his, his, a third of his crew uh, were killed at his, at his hands. Mm-hmm. You know, he ordered the, the death of the, the son of the man who put him there, the guy yeah. who groomed him to be boss. Phil Testa, the chicken man, you know, he killed the handsome Salvi Testa, the, you know, the crown prince of Philadelphia, you know, yeah. these guys. Yeah. I mean, you can't look, you can't make this stuff up. You just no. you can't. It, it's, it's the script. That's why it can be so easily romanticized in fiction because a lot of the scripts yeah. just write themselves. Yeah. I'm telling you, you, it's just, it's so bizarre. It's true. Yep. You know? And I've said this a million times. You and I have talked about it before. Truth at every angle. Truth at every angle is always stranger and more fascinating than fiction. Yes, always. absolutely. Absolutely. Speaking of, we uh, let's see, speaking of truth and speaking of fiction. Uh-oh. Uh, yeah. Let's get Let me out lay some truth on you, brother. Here's what we got coming on. Uh, we've got, let's see. Oh, this is going to be a going next week. Truth and fiction return. <laughs> uh, Stephen Plim's coming back. <laughs> Stephen Plim returns to wrestling with the future. And during the same week, again, following in the tradition of, uh, truth and fiction, Eddie Mansfield joins us on the 24th. Nice. 
Eddie Mansfield, the guy who exposed the wrestling business on 2020. Yeah. For the whole world to see. That that he, is a conversation I'm looking forward to because I know he's taken quite the beating, but he uh He won't from me. He won't take the beating from me. He'll I'll probably give him a standing ovation. Mm. No? Share your thoughts, young squire. Well, he, my my problem with with that, obviously, you know me. I'm I'm a purist. Always have been exposing the business. Why I hate people. You know, we've 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 disagreed on it before. Why I hate, you know, like 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 the like an Orange Cassidy. You know, where y- your entire gimmick is wrestling is fake. When you make, I mean, Eddie Mansfield. It's not just sixty minutes. Anytime. Owen Hart, anytime they need to bring out somebody to talk about what you're seeing isn't real, he's he's the one doing the interviews. Mm-hmm. And I, I I don't know, I just to me it kind of feels wrong to make I don't want to say make a living if that if you understand what I'm saying. You 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 make your you make a living exposing the business. Like well, the last thing wrestling needs right now is more is more Eddie Mansfield interviews. What he is going to talk about um and I and I I absolutely uh, concur with you. I too am a purist, uh, absolutely. But I I'm also one who believes in uh, truth and advertising. Oh yes, absolutely. Um, and and I can reconcile Eddie Mansfield very simply because what he did, he didn't really expose the business. What he exposed was World Wrestling Federation. Who right after that, and you can't you can't call the timing of this coincidental, but right after he did that, World Wrestling Entertainment acknowledged I mean World Wrestling Federation acknowledged that it was entertainment. Yeah. Right after that, interestingly, and right after that. Interestingly enough, maybe coincidentally, perhaps not, I think not, uh, is when Vince McMahon petitioned the New Jersey uh, State Athletic Commission for release from the athletic rule and said, oh, we're not athletics, so we're, we're not athletes, we're entertainers. Yeah, exactly. He, he wanted to be regulated the, the same way you would a Broadway show versus a, an athlete. It's not a competition. We're putting on a spectacle. Mm-hmm. But yet nobody seems to remember that, but they always remember Eddie Mansfield gigging himself. Yeah, well, d- don't get me wrong. V- Vince McMahon, I mean, that whole he, – he, and he even did the primetime address where he talked about what you're seeing is not a real sport. And, you know, he – really, I mean, yes. May, I, and when I agree. did that occur, Dan? Some, some of Mansfield definitely should deserve credit for that, but some of that too was, you know, Mc, McMahon wanted the, wanted the money. He didn't. He didn't want to have to pay the athletic commission fees if he didn't have to. And I'm going to tell you what else he didn't want to pay, and this is why Eddie's going to come on. He didn't want to pay for insurance benefits. Yes. For uh, for these guys that were mutilating their bodies and bleeding out like crazy, he didn't want to pay for that. Right. That's they were the, paying the... out of their own pocket. Some of mm-hmm. these guys were making. You're not going to believe this. But, and I have a copy of it. You can check it out. The, a guaranteed contract that you're going to shit when I tell you this. I'm not even making this up. 
a guaranteed contract for the World Wrestling Federation was 10 matches mm-hmm. at $50 a match. Okay? Yep. Why don't you think about that? That was their guaranteed contract. You're guaranteed 10 matches at $50 a match. That's what they were getting. Okay? Yeah. And you can check it out yourself. This contract is available online. You can view it. Oh, we had um, w- w- a couple, you know, b- back when, when uh, we had the, the, the roundtable discussion with uh, Duke, Duke the Dumpster, uh, Duke Drosy. He, w- he told the story about getting paid 20, 30 bucks a day because yeah. it's like, look, take the cash now or you'll get your paycheck at the end of the month. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, shit, I, you know, I, I need gas to get to the next venue. So yeah. you know, these guys were making le- some of them, some of them less than 50 bucks a day. All right. Now, here we go. Just a couple nights ago, I talked about a conversation I had with Red Bastine. Mm-hmm. All right. Red Bastine talked to me in a restaurant in New York City, Mario's restaurant on 61st in Lexington. We sat there, had a glass of wine and talked. And Red said they spent virtually every waking moment between their car or a hotel. They lived out of a suitcase, yep. wrestled every night, twice on Saturday, a matinee and an evening show, and yep. on Sunday, a matinee and evening show. Two shows Saturday, two shows Sunday. He said the biggest payoff he ever got at any given time was $75. And that was a big deal. Now, would you think about something? We're talking about on average, he said the average pay was between $20 and $25. Okay. $75 was a big payday for him. Yeah. That's talking about back in the 40s and 50s. Okay. Mm-hmm. You're talking about Duke the Dumpster Drosy, who wrestled in the 80s and 90s. Yeah. Making 30 bucks. Think about that. Yep. Well, you have that now with uh, you know, the, the whole push, and, and several high-profile media outlets have looked at it in the last, I'd say, maybe two or three years mm-hmm. with this in, what, what defines an independent contractor. Um, Let's talk about I, that, Dan. I remember I, I'm not a big fan of of his work or some of what he's done on social media. But um, WWE used to have a competitor named Ryback. And when Ryback left the company, he very much blasted the whole, how much bullshit it was. And he said his worst year because between insurance and medical costs and things he had to shoulder with like transport and all that stuff, he spent, he said he spent almost a hundred thousand dollars on the road, uh, you know, paying for a lot of that shit out of pocket. Now, granted he was making, you know, probably four or five hundred grand on his contract, but you know, you, you have this push where they say, "Oh, it in, was in, costing in, him, Dan. It was costing it, him to go to work." Basically, well, and that's a big thing now. It just the story just broke. What about a week or two ago, where yeah. uh, Vince McMahon put a, a deadline on his performers that they yeah. none of the they're not allowed to have third party contracts, and apparently mm-hmm. during that discussion, it was revealed. In the con that, that several of them had contracts where the WWE owns their real name and likeness, you know. So like somebody say like, uh, 
uh, I'll use use example, um, you know, like like an an, age, an Xavier Woods who has a YouTube channel under a different name. Well, we own your name and likeness, so we get a chunk of that money, or you don't have that website. Um, Paige just recently changed her screen name from her Twitch channel because they made her you can't use the name. Um, obviously, certain people like an AJ Styles who's owns owns that name because that's him. Yeah. You know, uh, but yeah, the fact that you, you, you're telling these people you're an independent contractor, who I, so I don't have to pay you anything. I don't have to give you insurance. I don't have to provide this out the other, but you work when I tell you, you can't work for anybody else. And Dan, let me ask you a question. Cause, cause you're a guy who, who has your more so than I, you're a guy who has your nose to the grindstone on this. How explain to me how. You even get away with that. And how someone hasn't, after all these years, because this is not a new practice with them. No, they, they've been doing it. How since, have since they the gotten away with it? And, and, and if, if you're an independent contractor, by virtue of that, mm-hmm. you're self-employed, are you not? That is correct. If that's the case. How does the WWE own anything from a self-employed contractor? They don't. Well, the, the WWE well, gets well, away with it. I, I, I have a, 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 I have a problem on many levels with. No, you're, you're absolutely right. And it's ridiculous. Even um, uh, last week tonight, it's a John Oliver host. It's a comedy news show. Oh, on I know HBO. John Oliver is. I, John I, Oliver I did an it. entire segment about a year ago on the WWE, just how ridiculous it was. And obviously the WWE went front and center with concussions and things, but they get away with it for two reasons. One independent contractor is more of a label than the way their contracts actually work. And the other thing is WWE is right now. They're the, I mean, for years they've been the only dog in in the yard. Now, when you were in the territory days, even the early days of WWE, when they had arrangements with certain promotions, like um, yeah. even through the even through the '90s when they worked with Smoky Mountain, you were an independent contractor because you worked elsewhere. Hulk Hogan yeah. went to Japan, and Randy Savage and and some of these guys went to the you know the Memphis area. Um, so you were technically a contractor, but now today sure. you're exclusive, 100. Uh, percent They get away with it because well, I'm sure their legal team is probably top notch. But the other thing is, if you don't want to sign this contract, don't. And there's a, a thousand indie guys making 50 bucks a month that would take your spot in a heartbeat and we can pay them less than what I just offered you. So good. Pay them less. Cause you know what? If, if I'm a, a talent of any worth, I'm going to say to them, they need the money more than I do. Yeah, Cause well, I have talent and I can go out and make my own money. You, you saw that with some of the trans, some of the, the, wrestlers that have gone to AEW in in, in over the last year some of them in uh, the revival being the big one or excuse me the uh, FTR now since the WWE owns the revival um they turned down something like $750,000 a year contracts oh, yeah. to go make to go make half that because it was like it's not about the money you're you're wasting my life yeah. not booking me properly and treating me like garbage i'm not taking your dirty money i want to tell you something uh, the best validation of that uh, comes from Cody Rhodes. Mm-hmm. And if you don't want his validation or 
you can't stand uh, to listen to him, listen to his brother, Justin. I'm, I'm sorry, Justin. Dustin Rhodes. Yep. Dustin Runnels. Um, those two brothers, they don't even own their name, okay? Yeah. They can't call themselves – well, he probably can now, but I don't even know what the status of that is. But I know that uh, if Dusty were alive, it would be a whole different ball game. Because Dusty would walk into Vince's office with a baseball bat and bust him open, and he would do it. Um, but, you know, when you can't even use the, the name that you're known by universally, yeah. you know, and that, that a name that your father used for 40, 50 years before that, yep. then there's a problem. And how they're getting around that it boggles me. It, it, and, it, and they- conf- it confines my... Uh, you know, my my tra- you know, my traditional yeah. thinking yeah. of like, well, isn't this just common sense? This is your name and you know, well, that's who you are. Well, no, apparently it's not that simple. They they did that with they did that with certain trademarks too, not just with the Rhodes names, you know, um the Great American Bash and War Games. And these were pay-per-views that Dusty created as a booker. Exactly. The WWE renewed copyrights just so Cody couldn't use that name. I know. Exactly. And why? For what reason? Because Vince McMahon's yeah, so a petty could, douche. That's why. And that's what we, we, we talked about before. It's, uh, you know, it's just why does Vince do it? Because he and that's, can. That's like I said, that's why I'm looking forward to that interview with Eddie Mansfield. Because other than respectfully disagreeing, I truly want to get hear his inside story on, especially now, now that Vince is kind of a crazy old bastard, you know. Well, and, and Vince has proved he's a crazy old bastard because that directive came right from him. Yeah. It didn't come from Hunter. It didn't come from from uh, Jerry McDevitt, his lawyer. It came mm. from him. Yep. From the office of Vincent J. McMahon, you know, uh, Vincent K. McMahon. That came from him. Yep. Vincent J., by the way, was his father, Vincent James McMahon. And people they call him Junior. No, but it, it's actually not. He's not actually not a Junior. You know, it's yeah. Vincent Kennedy McMahon. You know, a singular individual. Yeah, and most most people like, and they they still say Vince Senior, and that's not true either. Yeah, no. But even the old timers, it's funny. So like Dominic goes, you know, the old guy, not the not the one now, the old guy. Yeah. <laughs> You know, anyway, I tell you what, we had a great, uh, great time tonight. Great show. Dan, uh, what's going on in the, in the world of our social media? Tell everybody uh, where they can find us. And well, I, uh, obviously watching us on YouTube, uh, we're on Twitter at wrestling future. That's no G wrestling future. We have the Instagram at the rest or excuse me, wrestling with the future. And that's got our schedules and pictures and upcoming events and that's definitely a place to look. We obviously both, uh, Angelo and myself, are on Twitter. And we've got a lot of stuff coming up. We, we touched on it. we got a lot of uh, side channels and, and great shows. So keep an eye on the YouTube page. And we continue. You mentioned earlier the views on Podbay, just Podbay. But we're on sev- more than uh, several hundred oh my podcasts. Gosh. At, this, at this point, anywhere you want to find a podcast, you're going to find we're it. We're there. So, yeah. Were that yeah we you know it's funny. I went you know so occasionally I'll do this I'll just type in our name and start searching. Right. We are on. <laughs> I didn't even know this was a thing. We are on uh, a uh, a platform called 
uh, Owl, which is called Owl. Hold on, I'm going to tell you here in just a second. It's called Oh Pod Owl. It's called Pod Owl. Pod Have you ever owl, heard of it? Heard of that? No. Pod, yeah, Pod Owl. Well, there you, there you go. Plug for Pod Owl. They picked us up. Yeah, and it's an owl. It's their <laughs> logo is an owl. Right. Yeah, Pod Owl. Like, really? No shit. And I, we're on a shitload more. I mean, I mean, God, every time I turn around, we're on more stations. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, what was I going to say? Oh, I wanted to ask you, uh, where is the ref's roundtable? People are asking me, where's the ref t- round? T- where's the roundtable at? Well, we've had, uh, obviously, I was out of town previously, and I've had uh, quite a busy schedule, but we do have some some stuff in the works. My One of my usual panelists, and, and obviously you've noticed there's been no uh, promo either. Uh, Jason, we wish him the best. He's going through some some family, personal family issues um, yeah. and everything, but uh, – we're I'm it's in it's in the works. I'm trying not to not to dodge it. But outside of the podcast, I've been averaging almost 80 hours a week working. So things have been a little crazy. Well, you know, they uh, occasionally they take Dan out of his uh, secured bunker um, <laughs> from his undisclosed location. Right. Uh, and let him come out and see sunlight. <laughs> um, and once in a while, they, they give him real food to eat. Um, not that, you know, K ration stuff. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, you know, he's got a lot going on. I put a lot on this kid, but, uh, he's young. He can handle it. You know, right. He can handle it. You got it. Oh man. You got this kid. You got it. Man, you, you, but, you, you, know, and I, you and... mentioned Jason. I'll let the, the serious for a second. Uh, Jason is going through a bunch of stuff. Uh, Jason won't be back. Um, uh, we are going to, um, Forgo cut a promo until I find a, a new host. Um, Jason's welcome back anytime he wants to come back if he feels uh, that he can do it. Um, I'm not going to push him to come back, so I'm just going to replace him. Uh, and if he decides he wants to come back, then he'll be welcome back. Absolutely. Uh, uh, we have uh, the refs round table. We have cut a promo. We have. Uh, Life Lessons, which is our show. It will not be Life Lessons with Mike Messier. Mike Messier is no longer part of our platform or our podcast. We wish him well. But we do own Life Lessons, Wrestling with the Futures, Life Lessons. And uh, so we're looking for uh, a host for Life Lessons. If you're interested, submit your bio to Dan the Man Sebastiano at the man underscore WWTF. That's at the man underscore WWTF on Twitter. Am I yep, right? I, yes. And I can also be reached uh, email at the man dot WWTF at outlook.com. There you go. So uh, send your stuff to Dan and uh, he will vet you because <laughs> I'm far too important to do that shit. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel. Until next time, my friend, take care. Yes, sir. And you guys out there, happy wrestling, everybody. We'll see you next time.